Welcome. You are listening to Copland. Copland is about the life and times of our protectors and defenders, police, fire, EMS, medical trauma units, and the military. The underappreciated doing the unthinkable for the often ungrateful. I am Jay Dobbins, and I'll be your host. In each season, we will hear three episodes featuring extraordinary heroes, amazing personal experiences that will inspire and uplift you. Sometimes they might shock you. The highs and lows, the successes and the failures, told in their own words and all experienced during their personal journey of sacrifice to make the world a safer place. This is Copland. day standoff filled with shootouts and drama the week-long international manhunt for Christopher Dorner ended overnight in a blazing inferno and a hail of gunfire with local news stations broadcasting live what you are hearing is the scene unfolding live Sources tell ABC News it all started shortly after noon when a maid called 911, saying she and another worker had been tied up and held hostage by Dorner in a resort cabin. Remarkably, just a few yards from where police had been holding press briefings for nearly a week. She told police she'd broken free, but that Dorner had stolen a car. That call sparked a swift and overwhelming response. Roads closed, every car searched. Police say Dorner crashes that car, then flees on foot. Shut down the freeway, possibly uh, for the subject we've been looking for. Only to commandeer Rick Heltebrake's pickup truck on a nearby road. He pointed his big rifle at me in my truck. I stopped, put my truck in park, put my hands up. What he heard next? Gunfire that sources say was also from the fugitive. This time in a shootout with two approaching sheriff's deputies. Dorner kills one and wounds another before once again fleeing. Then, less than an hour later, residents report the sound of gunfire at a nearby cabin. As local news choppers hover overhead, SWAT teams surround Dorner and begin firing. The melee broadcasts live on KCBS. The shots you're hearing are all from guns and weapons that are being fired by law enforcement officers. By 2 p.m., smoke is pouring out of the building, then flames. Shortly before 5, reports of a SWAT team approaching the fire in an armored vehicle and injecting gas into the cabin. In Copland, we often hear glorious stories of our first responders from books, television shows, and movies. Many more, just as worthy, go untold, unpublished, and unbragged on those heroes never receiving their due attention, acclaim, or recognition. San Bernardino Sheriff's Department Sergeant Alex Collins is one of those incredibly heroic servants that you may not know by name. In February 2013, a failed and disgruntled Los Angeles Police Department officer, Christopher Dorner, went on a terror rampage that ultimately took the lives of four people and wounded three others. The manhunt for Dorner was the largest ever conducted in Southern California. It came to an end after Dorner was located and confronted by Alex, then only 26 years old, but not before Alex was significantly wounded in the gun battle. Alex's journey into law enforcement was one of admiration. He wanted to follow his brothers into the profession. started in uh, 2007, 
you know, uh, my older brothers were on the sheriff's department. So it was just kind of natural. I always just wanted to, I wanted to be like them, always looked up to them. They're like 10 years older than I am. So I just followed them into the, to law enforcement, something I wanted to do. I remember I was at, I think I was like 13, one, one of my brother's graduation. And they're playing the video. I'm like, oh man, this is like, this is it. This is for me. So it was always, I always had that. Joined the sheriff's department, you know, just kind of, I went to, you know, community college, just kind of wait until I could, you know, turn 21 and, and apply. So just kind of killing time, pissed my mom off. You know, both my brothers got their degrees. She wanted me to do that, but I don't I, I wanted it now. I didn't, I didn't really want to wait. So did that, uh, did a short time, you know, with the sheriff's department. We have, we start out at the jail, uh, depending on what, um, the state, what station we have in for. So for San Mario County, we have about 13 contract cities that we provide police for. So I put in an outline station, which is in the mountains. So I only had to do about six months in the jail. And then I started control out there. Um, worked there for about five years. Things were going great. It was a, it was a small station. You know, everyone's really close. And it was really easy to, uh, kind of stand out out there. It was some older guys that were there, not really that fast paced, but you could be as busy as you wanted to be. And I had some, you know, really good mentors that, that were up there and kind of guided me in the right direction. So everything was going good. I got an active detective spot up there in mid, uh, 2012. And that's where I was working when the whole, like, uh, when the Dorner manhunt came out in L.A. In 2008, Christopher Dorner was fired by the LAPD for making false statements in a complaint against his partner. He appealed that decision twice, each time having his termination upheld by the courts. During the legal proceedings, Dorner's lawyer was a retired LAPD captain turned defense attorney. On February 1, 2013, Dorner used Facebook to post his manifesto, listing the names of 40 law enforcement personnel he intended to kill. Two days later, while his first two victims sat in a vehicle outside their home, Dorner murdered the daughter of his attorney, 28-year-old Monica Kwan, who was then an assistant basketball coach at Cal State Fullerton, and her boyfriend, Keith Lawrence, a public safety officer at the University of Southern California. On February 7th, Dorner fired at officers attempting to stop his vehicle in Corona, California, grazing one of the officers in the head. Twenty minutes later, he ambushed two Riverside, California police officers stopped at a red light in their patrol car, killing Officer Michael Crane and severely wounding his partner. Dorner then fled to the Big Bear Lake area east of Los Angeles. I was at the Big Bear station, and, and we kind of started seeing this the, the Dorner thing. It's happened in L.A. We border L.A. County, um, but it was down in Irvine, a murder, and then it kind of hit close to home. Um, when Officer Crane was murdered and Officer Tachius were shot, and that was uh, in Riverside PD, and that's uh, that's really close to where we're at. Um, I was at home when that happened. I was on maternity leave. My wife had uh, just given birth to our first baby. Um, you know, I'm sitting there watching on the news. I'm like, oh my gosh! Like, and I'm seeing some of the guys from uh, one of our stations were out there helping out at the scene. I'm like, oh man, I know those guys. Those are guys, you know, from my department. And I just kind of start thinking about my brothers. My brothers and I are very close. So I think that was February seventh uh, when I when that happened when uh, when Dorner engaged the uh, two Riverside officers. Um, so I called my brother Ryan, and he my brother Ryan had just got promoted from our uh, we have a full time uh, uh, SWAT team. It's and we call it uh, Entity Specialized Enforcement Division. So he just got promoted from there from a uh, from detective to sergeant to patrol sergeant, and he got sent to the uh, the Big Bear Station where we work together. Um, so normally brothers don't work. 
together at the same stations. They don't really let it happen, especially one being a, a supervisor. Um, so I, and I, I want, when I went to Big Brown, I wanted it, uh, out of the jail. So I went to this outline station where I'm, I'm commuting, you know, an hour and 20 minutes from my house. And, uh, I always, I always wanted to leave there. I was like, oh, I'll do my, you know, two year commitment and then I'll, I'll transfer. So when my brother got promoted to that station. I was like, oh, okay, I'll, uh, you know, they're probably going to send me somewhere else. They're sim you know, we're somewhere closer to home or somewhere where I want to go. Um, but I, that didn't happen. I just, I don't think they knew there was a third, you know, little brother on the department. <laughs> so we ended up being able to, to work together. So he was working, uh, patrol watch commander that day and I call him and he's kind of whispering on the phone and he's like, Hey, we found Dorner's truck in Big Bear. And I, and I thought, kind of thought he was messing around with me. Um, just kind of like, man, nothing happens in Big Bear. You're lying. He's like, no, seriously, I got to go. So he hangs up with, with me and I call my brother, Matt who was uh, a, a detective on our uh, our SCD team at the time. And uh, he's like, hey, they found Dorner's truck in Big Bear. We're on our way up there. So I was on leave. I think I was in to my second week of maternity leave. And uh, I called my detective partner, Jeremy King. And I'm like, hey, they found Dorner's pickup truck in Big Bear. He goes, I know. I'm, I'm already uh, on my way. My wife's dropped me up off at your house, and we're going to go into work together. He was, uh, he was down at Newport Beach on vacation with his wife for a couple days. So his wife ended up dropping him off at my house um, so she could continue the vacation with the kids, and, and we went into work um, up to Big Bear doing that manhunt. After several carjackings and taking a couple hostage, on February 12th, Dorner had been tracked to a remote cabin at the end of an isolated road. It was all over the news at this point. Um, you know, largest manhunt in Southern California, uh, you know, prior to and still to date. And then we, all the stuff was out. We knew he murdered, um, you know, two civilians in Irvine. He uh, murdered Monica Kwan um, and her boyfriend, uh, I think Keith Lawrence. And then he murdered Officer Crane and, you know, severely wounded Officer Tachius in Riverside. Um, he put his manifesto out on his Facebook account. So we had copies of that. We were reading that. Um, there's several pages of it. Just, you know, crazy talk that he's going to get revenge on law enforcement. Don't try and stop him. Uh, your wife's, you're not going to get the Medal of Valor. She is, and, you know, you're going to be dead, all this other stuff. So we, we knew what we were dealing with. Um, and then, you know, all his stuff, all the guns that he had registered to him, uh, you know, 308, he had, like, 50 cows registered to him, just uh, just like a, like a prepper type of guy. He had law enforcement experience. He, he tried to go through. That's never always said he's an ex-cop, he's an ex-cop. He tried to be a cop, and he couldn't do it. Um, you know, the LAPD gave him several chances to go through more than I think they should after talking to some of the guys down there. Um, you know, he couldn't cut it. He obviously had some mental issues. Um, he was in the Navy Reserves, and I think he played that up a lot. Um, later, we found out later that he had all his, you know, pictures on Facebook where he's out in the desert and stuff like that, kind of making it seem like he's deployed, but it was up, he was up in, you know, the local Barstow area or Las Vegas, you know, shooting his own guns in the desert with his tack gear on making it seem like he's in Afghanistan, but he was just kind of in the local desert, you know, shooting cans and stuff like that. But yeah, he, he, he had training. He obviously was efficient with weapons and stuff like that. So it was all hands on deck. We have a, a pretty large department. I mean, we're not like LAPD or anything. We have about uh, a little over 2,000 sworn officers, you know, a full-time uh, tactical team, our narcotics team, um, you know, uh, local gang teams at station level. So everyone was kind of, everyone was up there. Um, and in the detective role, we we're just kind of trying to follow up leads. But it was kind of weird because uh, it was something I've never experienced before uh, until we had the IRC, the terrorist attack down in uh, in San Bernardino that where I was later involved in when I came back to work. 
but it was just kind of dealing with all these different agencies who, who, you know, had a hand in it. So Irvine obviously had a, a double homicide. Riverside PD had an officer murdered, so they were in on it. Um, LAPD had an officer shot at pro- right prior to the Riverside officers getting shot. Um, and then LAPD, obviously, with all their uh, high-ranking um, chiefs and captains and stuff like that being on this manifesto hit list type of thing. Um, so everyone was kind of in on it. Um, just being on the ground from there, just receiving information was a little hard. It's not how you typically handle investigation. Normally, you're you know right there um, getting it. So it was coming from a an outside source. So it was uh, just an example was like, okay, does this guy have any phones? Who's up on his phone? You know, who's he know? Um, it's like, oh, they're working on that down in LA. And you know, if you need to know, then they'll pass the information on. So it was kind of like, okay, well, let's just focus on. Where we're at, we're in a small community in Big Bear. Um, it's a vacation town. We have it. We found his car. So he drove up there. He shot the Riverside officers. Drove up there. Um, he ended up crashing his car, broken axle, um, lit it on fire, and then took off. He was nowhere to be found. So we found his car like later in the morning. So he had several hours head start on us. Um, you know, in a giant kind of forest area and a bunch of unoccupied vacation cabins where he could be hiding in. Um, <clears throat> so we were dealing with that on. Uh, I think that was Thursday, Thursday afternoon. By the time we got up there, we set a command post up. There's a, it was at the Bear Mountain uh, Ski Resort. They have a golf course up there. Um, it was closed, you know, because it was winter time. So we set up our command post in there, and then brought all our our resources up there. And once we uh, we found his car, we were able to get that out. We were making sure it wasn't going to be an ambush situation when we pulled his car out, and uh, then we kind of went from there with our you know bloodhounds aviation. And so we did that on Thursday and Friday, and then Saturday, I think it started snowing pretty bad. So now we're dealing with the elements. Now we don't have any aviation that can fly. Um, now we're just kind of doing a, a ground search. And we knew, especially the stuff that he was putting out, that he already shot officers. Um, it was whoever's find them, whoever finds them is going to get into a gunfight. And, you know, a lot of us up there, that's why we do this job. Like, we wanted to be the one that found him we didn't want one of our other guys to get up there and you know i was up there with my two my two older brothers and stuff um so we're you know everyone's worried about each other um but once it started snowing pretty bad i thought he took off and and was out in the forest because he had a bunch of camping stuff that he he burned i i thought that was his kind of his plan he was going to go out in the forest and hide out so i thought i thought he was out there and you know he burned a lot of his stuff i think he kind of freaked out when he crashed his car and you know broke his axle um I thought we were going to find them, you know, in the springtime when the snow melted. So we were up there from Thursday until Tuesday, the 12th, looking for them. And we kind of, by that time, we kind of scaled everything back. We were cutting down our overtime positions, all our extra help. Um, we had one, one of our, uh, one of our four uh, SWAT, our teams, um, up there on standby. They were on 24-hour rotation. So we had one team up there, and the rest of the guys kind of went back, and a lot of guys were doing, you know, back to their day-to-day stuff, but we were still, you know, maintaining our command post. We moved it back from the golf course back to the station by Tuesday, uh, and my partner and I were kind of following up leads uh, to where he, he could be or if he has any contact with anybody up there. On Tuesday, we're, we're following up some leads, and then we get the call from, from dispatch over the radio that uh, – a husband and wife that own a vacation cabin up there came up there to clean their, it was a condo. They went up there to clean their condo and uh, Dorner was inside, um, pointed his M4 at him, tied him up and stole the keys to their, uh, their SUV. So the wife was actually um, able to uh, 
get her hands untied and, and call 911. But it took her about 30 minutes. So Dorner had about a 30 minute head start on us from uh, when she called 911. Stolen vehicle, he's in the area. Um, it was actually kind of like right up the street from where our command post was, not too far from where his vehicle was found. So he, uh, he found an unlocked back door to this condo, went inside, locked it behind him, and was sitting up in there the entire weekend. Now we're looking for this, uh, this stolen vehicle, about a 30-minute head start. Me and my partner, we, uh, we jump in the car, and we start heading up to where the, uh, the couple was tied up. Then dispatch relays the information that he left about uh, 30 minutes prior to the, uh, the wife calling 911. So Big Bear's kind of a it's, a, it's a different kind of mountain community. It's uh, in a valley with a, you know, a large lake. And it's, but it's kind of set up like a city grid. It's not like normal mountain where they're up on the side of the hill type of stuff. Um, and there's about three main ways to get up there. So my partner, he, uh, he spent a lot of time up there, worked a lot of years on patrol up there. And as a detective, he's like, you know what? He probably went down Highway 38. We call it the back way, and that leads into our Ukaipa station. He goes, he probably went down Highway 38. Um, you know, we got three guesses. I'm like, hey, let's just start heading down that way and see if we can see him. So we're going down Highway 38. We actually have a, uh, it's a resident deputy post. Um, and it's in between, like our, Ukaipa is a large city, you know, housing track, golf course and stuff like that. So we have a, one of our police stations is there and we have a resident post um, that's in between the mountain community and the city. It's, uh, so he was in the area. He pulls off to the side of the road and he's like, hey, I'm just going to get some spike strips ready just in case this stolen SUV comes down this mountain road it's a two-lane uh mountain highway so he's he's about halfway down and he pulls the uh gets, he's getting his spike strips ready and as he's getting them out uh the SUV passes him and you can see clear in the window and you know he identifies that it's Dorner driving this SUV by the time the deputy gets back in the car uh he gets stuck behind a couple vehicles finally catches you know passes him and he goes hey you know I should have caught up to, to this SUV by now um, and he starts backtracking and seeing if there's any, uh, you know, offshoot roads that he could have turned down. So uh, he finds a road and he uh, goes down a little bit and it's called Glass Road. It's a small, like one lane. I think it's the, a dead end, you know, after a couple miles. There's a couple uh, cabins on a stream down there. And uh, he goes down Glass Road, maybe about half mile and finds, finds a stolen SUV. And it's uh, crashed into the side of the road into a, a snow berm. Driver doors open, so the deputy does a really good job, clears it by himself, um, and inside the back of the SUV, he finds his one of Dorner's, you know, 308 sniper rifles, uh, a couple of uh, CS gas, gas, and I think some smoke canisters that are in there. And he puts that out. And luckily, we were, you know, already down there, so we got there pretty quick, and we were able to meet up with that deputy where that uh, where the stolen vehicle was dumped. We meet up with the deputy, and then. Uh, Jeremiah McKay, he was a detective at the Ukaipa station. So he gets there, and uh, I think there was about four or five of us there at that time. And uh, we're just kind of setting up a perimeter, just trying to figure out, you know, relay with the, all the responding units. Our, our tactical team was down um, at their main office. So they start coming up. My brother calls me, and uh, he kind of he he tells me, he's like, hey, dude, like, he's all, wait for me. I'm on my way. Kind of like, don't go down Glass Road looking for this guy. He kind of He says, don't go down there by yourself. Wait for me to get there. So I kind of hang up from him, and I tell uh, my partner, I'm like, hey, you know, the SWAT's on their way. Like, we better go before they get here. Like, you know, they're going <laughs> to they're gonna have all the fun <laughs> type of thing. As I'm talking to them, the resident deputy gets a, a call on his cell phone from a, from a local resident. That's just kind of how, how 
dispatch, they just call this deputy directly. He's kind of their, their contact. It's a small, you know, small community. So the guy calls and he goes, hey, I was just driving on Glass Road and, and Dorner uh, stole my uh, Dodge pickup truck. And I was driving up. He popped out from behind a tree, pointed his rifle at me and stole my truck and went downbound Glass Road. He's like, it just happened. Um, so I'm like, oh, crap, he's right. That, it's right there. During the manhunt, Alex crossed paths with two fish and game officers who had been ambushed by Dorner moments before. He knew he was close. So we hop in our cars, we start going down Glass Road, and we come across uh, two fish and game officers. It was a lieutenant and a ward, and their car is just like riddled with bullets. So we stop and talk to them, and they go, hey, um, Dorner just drove by in a Dodge pickup. He uh, put his uh, M4 out the window and just lit our cars up as he drove by. Um, luckily, the guys weren't hit, um, but, you know, windshields shot out, side windows are shot out, and they're like, hey, he went he went down. So now we got a guy actively shooting at, you know, fishing game guys, you know, carjacking civilians. We continued down Glass Road, and that's where um, two of our, our SWAT guys got there, and it's uh, Danny Rosa and Larry Lopez, and, and these guys saved my life. I wouldn't be talking to you right now if it wasn't for them. Um, so they get there. And they get, they go, and they're like, we're like, hey, he just shot at these fish and game guys. So they get in front of us, and they take off. Um, one of the guys was driving one of the, our big, um, like, team. Each team had a big van with, that carries all the equipment. So he grabbed some of his gear out of his, his van, uh, left his van there, and, and got in uh, Danny Rosa's pickup truck, and they and they took off down beyond Glass Road. So we're going down, and uh, we go about another mile or two, and we come across uh, two real old, crappy, like, I think they call them summer cabins that are on the stream. And there's snow on the ground, there's a bunch of footprints, and there's a set of vehicle tracks that, like, pull up to the driveway of this, uh, in between these two cabins. So we pass the cabins, and then the resident deputy, he stops in front of us, and he and he goes, hey, um, I couldn't keep up with the SWAT guys that were driving too fast, but he's like, I think we should check these cabins out, because I was down here earlier, and those tire tracks weren't there. So at this point, I'm getting kind of frustrated. You know, our helicopter's up above us at this point. And I'm like, hey, you know, we're looking for this Dodge pickup truck. You know, why are we stopping here? Let's let's go with the uh, the SWAT guys. We're, you know, we got them on the run right now. He's like, no, I'm telling you, let's check this cabin real quick. Those tire tracks are weird. So we get out, and uh, everyone is uh, kind of messing around with, with the cars, uh, looking around, just kind of setting a perimeter type of stuff. And then uh, King and I start walking up with McKay to where this cabin is because we parked down the street. Um and this is a, it's a really, uh, you know, kind of dense forest area where we're at. So we're walking up, and then uh, a vehicle pulls up down the street, and it's uh, a narcotics team. It, it was a joint team. It was a, a sergeant from a local PD and then a deputy from the sheriff's department. Um, I think they were on, on a lab team or something like that. So they're driving a Dodge Durango. So they stop. They see us. They stop directly in front of the cabin and get out of the car and uh, kind of are hanging out by the front bumper. So King and I and McKay walk up to them to tell them that, hey, we're going to clear this cabin real quick, which isn't any different than kind of what we were doing all the days prior, um, you know, checking vacant cabins and stuff like that. So it wasn't anything other than the fact that, you know, Dorner was on the run and he had just shot two fishing game guys. Alex was trapped inside a staged ambush, shot multiple times. His composure in the most dire of circumstance kept him alive. And I continue to walk towards the cabin. And right when I break, like, the second plane of this uh, window on the cabin, 
uh, Dorner starts shooting. So he was inside. He actually drove the truck in between the, the two properties and crashed the truck down a small embankment, kicked the back door of the cabin, was sitting inside like the, the living room area, kind of offset from the window. So as soon as I broke that plane of the window, he just had a, you know, had his sights on me. And uh, first round, went through the window, uh, hit me right in my face, went in next to my left nostril, went through the roof of my mouth, uh, out the right side of my jaw, and the round continued and embedded into the uh, shoulder strap of my Molly vest. Um, second round hit me in my left forearm. Third round hit me in my chest. I was wearing, like I said, the Molly vest, um, but it didn't have—I didn't have a plate in it. It was, it was soft body armor. Uh, went through my my vest, uh, and then hit me in the chest, right on my left pec. And then I turned to take cover, and uh, as I was running behind the vehicle, I was shot just right. Right below my left knee, kind of blew up the tibia plateau, and then I took cover behind the uh, the rear tire of the Dodge Durango. And uh, I, you know, we knew he was shooting rifle rounds, and I and I felt my chest was on fire, and it was kind of like the movie's blood was pouring out of my face. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna die. Um, luckily, I didn't find out until I woke up at the hospital uh, a couple weeks later. But the round actually went through. I had my uh, my iPhone in my 511 jacket, had a chest pocket. So it went through my bulletproof vest, hit my iPhone, the bullet fragmented, and it slowed down enough where it didn't, it didn't penetrate my chest cavity or anything. So that the iPhone kind of saved my life with that with that chest shot. So I took cover behind the rear tire, and Dorner kept you know kept firing at me. The whole uh, the rear quarter panel tent came out in one piece, kind of landed in my lap. Uh, round skipped from under the car, hit me in my right hand. So I just kind of tucked my elbows in and the. It was like I said, they were on a lab team, so they sh- he shot one of the respirators that was in the back of the thing, so that thing hits an air. Um, the tires hits an air from taking rounds, and uh, and again, blood just kind of pouring out of my mouth. All my my chin was broken in three spots, so um, I was just trying. I put my head down. And I was just trying to kept telling myself, "Don't panic," and and uh, was just trying to tell myself to you know. All right, don't freak out, don't freak out. Just trying to get any oxygen that I could um, with all the stuff going on in my mouth at that time. Um, so there was a stop in Bali, a fire. Uh, McKay and the two narcotic officers took cover behind the engine block while King um, ran back to where we initially parked and then started laying cover, covering fire down at the cabin. With Alex badly wounded and dying, the firefight with Dorner continued. San Bernardino Sheriff's Deputy Jeremiah McKay was sniped by Dorner, a lethal shot that took his life. Probably about a minute stop in the, um, from Dorner shooting because uh, we were taking cover behind the car. And, uh, you know, McKay did a great job. He was directing our aviation into what, because there was two, uh, two cabins there, what cabin Dorner was in. Um, so he goes, he starts returning fire at the cabin from behind the engine block, goes down, he goes to return fire a second time, and as soon as he uh, popped up from the hood of the car, uh, Dorner was kind of waiting for him from inside the cabin and, and just started firing at him. And one of the rounds actually hit him in the in the collarbone, and I think from what I was told, it, you know, shot diagonal uh, across his body, and he, he uh, was killed um, from that round. And I, he was hit several more times from, from underneath the vehicle. Alex was bleeding to death. In the chaos of his rescue, he was left exposed. His SWAT team partners arrived and took heroic action, regaining control of the situation. I was kind of dealing with everything that I, I had going on. Um, you know, I, I know I got hit in the arm until, until later on, but at this point my leg is, is really hurting, and 
I, I was pretty much just kind of waiting to die. There was just so much blood coming out of my mouth. I couldn't breathe. Um, you know, I, I had that. I thought I had that chest wound. You know, that the iPhone stopped it. So uh, the two narcotics officers, they see me go down. They see McKay go down. Uh, I don't really know the exact story of what happened, but um, I guess what their plan was, they were going to roll the car out, um, put it neutral, and then drag uh, me and McKay behind the car and use it as cover. But whatever happened, the plan didn't go how they thought. They put it neutral. Uh, the deputy gets in there, uh, puts the seat back, puts it neutral, rolls the car out, and uh, once they get away from the cabin down to where he initially parked out of, like, you know, the kill zone pretty much, um, the deputy gets out of the car, and he's like, where's, where's Collins McKay? And then the, the PD officer goes, oh, you know, McKay's dead and Collins was too heavy, I guess, so I, I, I couldn't drag him. So now we're laying out in the middle of the road um, in the middle of the open, and uh, I was just waiting to get shot again. I look back, and the cabin's right there. Uh, Luckily, uh, our two SWAT guys, uh, Larry Lopez and Danny Rosa, they heard, you know, on the radio, officer down. They turned around, they realized they passed the cabin and came back, and they started laying full auto fire uh, down at the cabin. They immediately came up with a with a plan. Uh, you know, s- several of our responding SWAT guys started to get in there, uh, including my brother Matt. So one of his teammates, uh, Justin Musella, he coordinated with uh, Danny and Larry from like the. Danny and Larry were on the uh, west side. Moose, uh, Musella arrived on the east side. So he coordinated with them. He's like, hey, I'm going to run out there. I'm going to throw smoke in front of Collins. You guys run out there and grab him. That's exactly what they did. Uh, Musella ran about 50 yards in the middle of the open to the adjacent cabin, uh, threw two cans of smoke for us. And uh, uh, Danny laid cover fire while Larry ran out. He grabbed McKay, uh, pulled him back to the cars, and then uh, vice versa for Danny. So uh Larry laid cover firewall. Danny ran and, and grabbed me, kind of grabbed the carrying handle of my vest and uh, drug me on my stomach back to uh, back to the vehicles. And I remember these guys. I, I you know, these guys. We we see them working out at the academy all the time. And I and I looked up to these guys so much. I always wanted to be a part of this team. You know, be like my brothers. And that was, you know, my goal is to you know to one day be like them. And I just remember I'm like telling myself I'm like, don't say anything. It hurts so bad. Just keep your mouth shut because the last thing these guys remember is you like crying. You know, and you're going to die. So I just kept telling myself, like, don't fucking say anything. Just don't, because I want to tell them, like, oh, my leg is killing me or, you know, get me out of here type of stuff. I just, I'm like, don't freaking say anything. Being shot multiple times was only the beginning of the battle for Alex. As responding officers continued their gun battle and deployed gas into the cabin, creating a massive fire, Alex was fighting for his life. They threw me in the back of, uh, inside the cab of uh, Danny's pickup truck, and then they put McKay in there, and then uh, the two narcotics officers actually drove us out um, to our, our aviation medic ship um, that was already in the air at the time. Once they called that officer down, they, they loaded up and took off. They had a full-time reserve ER doctor on board. Uh, he, I think he volunteers like a couple days a month. He was working that day volunteering. So uh, they found a landing zone, did an awesome job, um, you know, in the middle of the forest, and were able to uh, load us up from the car and put us in the, uh, the medic ship and fly us to, uh, you know, our trauma center. They flew us out. Um, then, you know, all our, our personnel got there. They, uh, it kind of went from there like a barricaded subject. This, um, we had our tack tractor get there. Uh, we did negotiate like PA announcements, try to get them to come out. Nothing. Uh, we shot cold gas in there. Nothing. He actually uh, was throwing his own, uh, smoke canisters from inside the cabin. I think he thought we were going to make entry in there. So uh, we ended up throwing some hot gas and 
it was actually one of the cams that missed. It didn't it didn't land inside. It landed outside of the cabin, kind of right on the edge of the wood cabin, and uh, started a small, um, you know, slow burning fire. Uh, cabin started to get engulfed, and uh, Dorner was inside the. Uh, he committed suicide. He shot himself in the head from inside the cabin once it started catching on fire. And, and, and it took a while to get us out. I think we were out there for oh man, I think close to thirty minutes, thirty forty minutes. By the time I got shot, till the time we got to the hospital, I think it was about forty minutes. So I kept on waiting to pass out. I'm like, man, this freaking hurts. Um, and the doctor did a really good job. Uh, he, Dr. Gerges, is, uh, he, he's an ER doctor on there. And I, I told him, like, hey, I'm like, I felt like this overwhelming guilt, like I let my brothers down. You know, I never wanted to embarrass them, but I, I felt like I messed up. Uh, I was like, man, they're going to be pissed off at me. So I, uh, I told him, like, I'm like, hey, man, tell my brothers I'm sorry. Uh, tell them I'm sorry for this, putting them through this, because I thought I was going to die. And uh, he goes, dude, he's like, it's not that bad. Uh, he goes, we're going to be drinking beers this time next week. And I'm like, holy shit. I was like, I thought I was going to die for the past, you know, 35 minutes. And I, I felt like a big wuss, dude. Um, but he was full of shit. I was in a coma that time next week. So, but it, it actually worked. It made me feel better. Um, I'm like, oh, okay, this guy's telling me I'm going to be okay. It's not that bad. They get us to the hospital. Um, I remember getting wheeled out. They, they put me on my back at first, but I had so much blood and stuff like that the, going on in my mouth. All the blood started pulling up, and I started uh, kind of choking on the blood. So I had to, uh, they had to flip me back over on my stomach. So I kind of, they didn't really do too much work on me in the helicopter um, just because it was kind of, you know, standing room only in there. It was pretty packed, and, and then I was on, uh, you know, on my, on my stomach. So they get us to the hospital, and that's when I kind of realized that was uh, when my arm was shot. They pulled they were taking my watch off. They were cutting all my pants off, cutting my vest off and my boots and stuff. And then um, the, one of the nurses pulled my arm out. and uh, It just looked like a bunch of crab meat kind of hanging out of my jacket sleeve. I'm like, oh, man, I got shot in the arm, too. That's just, I'm like, oh, man, this is bad. And uh, that was kind of the last thing I remember. Um, then they you know, sedated me, and I, I woke up uh, about a week later in the hospital. I had the, you know, the... It was, I was in and out. I woke up. I had the, you know, the breathing tube in and stuff. And that's when I realized McKay uh, didn't make it. His, uh, everyone, no one was in my hospital room. And uh, uh, his funeral was on, on the TV. Alex refused to accept the doctor's prognosis of his injuries in his determination to get back on the job. My doctors are amazing. My, my late doctor, she, she, I, you know, she knew how I, from the second I woke up, I'm like, man, I got to get back to work. I was like, I'm 26. That's all I wanted to do. Um, the initial thing, they were going to amputate my leg just because, um, you know, the knee joint and everything was was so heavily damaged. Um, she was able to do like a temporary fix while they kind of came up with the plan. I had, you know, the big giant erector set from, you know, my waistline all the way down to my ankle with pins and all that stuff sticking out. Uh, but she was able to, to come up with a, a way to maybe fix it. And uh, But she, you know, she was straightforward with me. She's like, hey, you're, you're probably never going to return to the sheriff's department, let alone, you know, be very active. You're not going to run. Um, you know, the nerve damage is really bad. Uh, so I, 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 I was like, okay, I, I wasn't arguing with her or anything like that. I was like, okay, I'm going to listen. But she's like, we're going to do everything we can to uh, to get you back to, to where you want to be. Um, so it was just, uh, it was always, you know, the next step. And they're always working on something that was, you know, fixing my jaw, fixing my leg, fixing my arm, uh, you know, bone graft. They, I don't think I have any hip bone left. They took all my hip bone put it back in my leg and my jaw um so it was just uh it, i was in the icu icu for about a month and then some rehab hospital so it was always uh you know they always talk about setting like a you know achievable achievable goal for yourself like and that's what it was it was like okay let me get out of this icu and you know get to the rehab hospital because that's the next step getting home 
let me get out of the rehab hospital, let me get home. And then it was, okay, let's focus on getting this, all this junk off your leg, you know, the next surgery. And uh, so it was just one thing after the, the other. Next thing you know, you know, it was eight months later, and I'm sitting back at work on, on light duty. It just went, it went really, it went really fast. Um, I think I came back to work too early, but I wanted to do it because everyone was so worried. My brothers, my parents, you know, my wife. I was like, you know, if I can get back to work uh, just on that light duty capacity where you know, I, I could barely, I walked, I had a, they call it like drop foot where I couldn't move my foot. Um, but they built this, uh, carbon fiber thing that went up my leg where I could, uh, I could walk, you know, with a walker and stuff like that. And, uh, I was like, I just got to get back and, you know, we can start moving on, on from this. And then it went from, um, you know, I'm like, okay, cool. Now I got to get, get full time. And it went, I was like, okay, we'll go to the track Academy, you know, before work. Um, and I had a hard time walking there, let alone doing a lap around it. And it was just, you know, one thing after the next. Um, and the next thing I know, I, I was back full time, back to work. Uh, and then that whole dream, you know, of me maybe going, getting on our SWAT team, kind of becoming a reality, uh, probably around like 2000 and uh, late 2014, early 2015. I really started focus on that, started focus on run. I was a big runner uh, prior to getting shot something I like to do. Uh, my brother was really into road bikes at the time. I always made fun of those guys, you know, yell at them on the side of the road wearing the spandex and stuff. But uh, I couldn't run. I, I had this drop foot and he goes, hey, you know, I, we'll get you on this road bike. We'll clip your foot in there and I think you can you start exercising. That's kind of where it started. And so we start doing doing the road bike thing. I start running uh, and I'm getting better, getting faster. And uh, I end up getting an opportunity to go through our, uh, our three-week SWAT school. Um, I do that and uh, I ended up making it through and put some setbacks. I, uh, prior to going through the first one, we do it every six months. I ended up re-breaking my leg, my bad leg, just because I was off it for so long. And then I start doing all this, you know, extra, extra running and stuff like that, just getting ready for it. It's kind of overtraining and it breaks my leg. And that was another setback. Um, so, you know, I'm back at home, you know, dealing with that. But uh, I healed up for six months and I, I went through our SWAT school in April 2015 uh, and ended up passing that and getting an opportunity to be on the, being a, be on a team and being a part of it, being with the guys, you know, that, that saved my life and these guys that I looked up to. Many times God becomes the focus of our thoughts during traumatic incidents, providing us lessons to use moving forward. I mean, I was thinking about, you know, God, the, the second I got shot, um, it was just, I was like, oh my gosh, this is, this is how, how it is. Um, and, and then afterwards, I, I, I felt like, I, you know, I, like I got a second opportunity to, uh, like another chance at life. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't take things for granted anymore. Uh, I, I feel like I have a completely different personality. Things don't bother me anymore. I let a lot of things slide. You know, before it was all about work. Um, that's all I focused on was work, work, work. And then now it's just kind of about enjoying things, um, you know, and, you know, work can come second. So, and, and now it's like, you know, all right, let's, let's get out there. And, and I, I never thought I'd be able to push my heart, myself as hard as I, I, I did before, um, with like the whole, like, um, you know, running thing. I, once I started getting back into it, I'm like, oh my gosh, like I checked my times. I'm like, man, I'm way faster now with all these injuries than I was before. And then, you know, we do this, I'm like, okay, what else is next? So me and kind of like my buddies that I work with, that I went to the academy with, they're like, all right, like, what are we going to do next? Um, so then we start doing these triathlons, you know,
know, and then we did, did Ironman in, in Utah a year ago. Um, so it was just, it's just this kind of weird thing. I'm like, and I would have never done that before. And then uh, now coming back to work and, and, and being a patrol sergeant, I, I feel like I have a, an opportunity, you know, with these guys and like, man, let's, you know, let's, in, let's enjoy this, this time we have together. Let's look out for each other and let's, let's be there for each other. You know, law enforcement, you kind of see it. Everyone's, it's weird. Like we have each other's backs, but at the same time, we're always knocking each other down and uh, it's really unfortunate. So I try to, I try to get away from that. Like, you know, let's build each other up. Um, you know, we get enough, of, enough crap from these criminals and stuff like that and, and the public. Uh, let's, let's build each other up and, 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 be, and let's do a good job. Let's, uh, let's go out there. Let's work hard. Let's PT hard. And, uh, you know, let's, 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 you know, produce a good work product. So, for Alex, a sense of pride is found in overcoming his setbacks and continuing to chase his dream. You know, getting an opportunity to to being with these guys that, that saved my life, and then going. You know, we hold this uh, for for me at least. We hold this. You know, this this school, this uh, this team, like our our SED team. I I, I I don't know if anybody else does. I think that guys do, but I, I held it so high. You know, and just to to be to go through all this stuff and to have these injuries and. Uh, just to go and get that done. It was like, it, that was like a, it was kind of an end to this. It was a conclusion to, you know, all these surgeries that I've had and that I continue to have. They're still working on my mouth. I just had another surgery a couple weeks ago. But with that, it was like, a, this moment's not going to define me. So that was like a, a great achievement uh, personally for myself. Regret comes to Alex from the loss of Deputy McKay that day. You know, knowing the outcome of what happened, I, I wish we would have done things different. And, you know, the experiences that I have now, I don't think I would make the same mistake twice. But where I will, I can't think, I, I try not to dwell on that because um, where I was, we would have done the same thing over and over again. Um, you know, it's unfortunate, but it, it just, it's just how it went. Um, you know, the training that we had, uh, every, the events that led up to that day, uh, you know, it's horrible that McKay lost his life. I would definitely do that day over again. Um, if I can, and that's, that's being back on patrol as a patrol watch commander. I'm like, man, this is cool. This is, I, you know, I can, you know, add, add my experience in with this kind of stuff. The experience that I've learned being on, on the, on our SED team, um, at a, in a patrol aspect when really that's the most dangerous job there is in law enforcement. I think, um, you know, we go to these SWAT calls and stuff like that. We have the best armor. We have the best equipment. Everything's controlled by us for the most part. And, you know, I realized that when I went back to patrol, uh, I went back to patrol as a sergeant in, uh, in September of, uh, 2019, uh, you know, a couple months ago and it was my 12th day back on patrol. And, you know, we got a crazy call. This guy was in a, you know, a big diesel rig truck and we get in a pursuit and he ends up sh start shooting out of the window. It's still going on. I can't, I can't, but, but uh, you know, he, he rams my patrol car and, uh, starts shooting out of the window at me, um. That, that was my 12th day back on patrol, so we get in this big, you know, gun battle with this guy. Um, like, okay, like, like, it's real. You know, I guess I'm, I end up finding myself in these these situations, but we go out there and, you know, actually, you know, we uh, we came out on top on this one, so. Um, but, you know, I, I think, uh, I think I was, you know, lucky that I was there with, I had some really guys, really good guys working patrol, and, uh, you know, I was able to add my experience and in, in things that I went through into that, uh, into that situation. I think it made it worth it going through all that stuff to now I can go back in there and, you know, kind of put some purpose to 
why, you know, you always wonder why did this happen to me? Why did it happen to me? It's like, well, maybe it happened to me for, for this reason. Through his experiences, Alex learned the patience and perseverance required by all lawmen and women. You know, sometimes we have to learn to, to walk away. Um, you know, we'll get them the next day. I think in law enforcement, we, we have these egos where it's like, okay, again, Dorner, we couldn't walk away from. There's things where we could, where we could you know, take a step back and like, okay, let's, let's reevaluate this. We don't need to go in there right now. Um, you know, it's just kind of everything that's going on with how pursuits are and stuff like that. It's like, okay, do we really need to chase a guy, you know, uh, that has a felony warrant, you know, 120 miles an hour through residential streets? No. Um, you know, we know who he is and we'll get him another day. So that's something I've learned. And I was, you know, you asked me that, uh, you know, 10 years ago, I'd be like, you're freaking crazy. I was like, this guy's, you know, this guy's a lame. There's no way we're getting our guy. Um, and I think that's something I've learned. Uh, you know, hey, we'll get him another time um, when it's when it's we're not putting the public at risk, putting ourselves at risk for uh, you know some a dope case or something like that. Something where the guy's gonna you know get probation and credit time served. So I think that's something that I've learned and I, I take away from, and I kind of tell the guys like, hey, you know, I know we're mad or you know we want to get this guy, but let's take a step back, let's be smart about it, and we'll we'll get him on our terms, not on his. Still going through this stuff, and it's like I have my ups and downs. Like this last surgery I had, I had some. Uh, you know, complications with it, and it was just, you know, you go down in those valleys, man, where it's just like, gosh, and then, but it's all about, you know, the process about coming back up, so let's just kind of remember that. Alex's experiences have brought him the wisdom of a veteran to a still young officer. Just be there for your family about coming home and, you know, what's important. It's it's fucking dangerous out there. Um, You know, I'm going into work right now, and, you know, we're going to go out there, and we're going to go battle. Um, You know, there's some fucking bad people out there that want to kill people or innocent people and kill us. Copland is produced for those courageous men and women whose alarm clock goes off every day. They put their feet on the ground, buckle on gear, and kiss their families goodbye with no guarantee they will ever come home. They go willingly, facing predators and violence on behalf of good and innocent people who simply want to live safe, peaceful lives. Thank you for listening. God bless and go be amazing.